0: A Different Kind of Leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings, so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hello, this is Giselle Corby Smith, host of A Different Kind of Leader. I am so excited to be joined today by my colleague, Dr. Lauren Smith. She is the Chief Health Equity and Strategy Officer for the CDC Foundation. In this newly created role, she brings more than 25 years working in the, at the intersection of healthcare delivery, management, public policy, and public health fields. She comes to the CDC Foundation from FSG, which is a social impact consulting firm where she served as co-CEO, and led the firm's U.S. health practice, partnering with community, social sector, public sector, healthcare, public health, and philanthropy leaders. She's led previous leadership roles, including as the medical director and interim commissioner for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, the senior strategic advisor for a national innovation and improvement network focused on reducing infant mortality, and the medical director of the Pediatric Inpatient Service at Boston Medical Center. She's held federal and state government roles as a policy analyst in the office of the Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and as a W.T. Grant Health Policy Fellow in the office of the Massachusetts Speaker of the House. I am so excited to reconnect over this last year with Lauren We started out together and she chose the road less traveled. And it has been just glorious to be able to reconnect after so many years and hear about her triumphs as a leader. Lauren, thanks so much for being here today. I'm happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. So, we're going to start as the way that we have started um, all of our interviews with a quote from you that either embodies your leadership style or as a career, something that you've looked to for your career, or just a quote that you like?
2: Well, my quote that I go to, it used to actually be the screensaver on my computer when I was early in my career as a young faculty member and a fellow, and that is, service is the rent we pay for living. And to me, that embodied sort of the the drive or the you know the, the reason for the directions and the various twists and turns that I took but certainly it stays with me so feeling like you need to be of service.
1: I want to hear about your trajectory, how you got to be where you are. Because from what I remember, when we were Amos Fellows together, that's funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, is that you were always clear-eyed about the impact your work needed to have on policy. I remember sitting at breakfast and thinking, OMG, why am I interviewing? This woman is incredible. I remember distinctly thinking I should just pack my bags and go home.
2: Oh, you stop!
1: I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not. This is. I am not blowing smoke. I believe me. I remember that feeling, thinking you were so clear about the need to impact policy, and so I don't know about twists and turns. Tell us, sort of, how you got to where you are today.
2: Well, I guess it's see, well. First of all, thank you for that. You know this. This is the example that a friend once told me about as individuals, especially, I would say, perhaps as women, we compare our insides to other people's outsides. And so while you were busy having whatever that was, I can 100% tell you like, oh my gosh, who's this woman? She's so compelling. Oh my gosh. I love that. Comparing our insides to each other's outsides. That's beautiful. Right? You don't, you don't know what all of the other stuff that's going on inside, but the love was coming right back at you even way back then. But you know, honestly, I think I always knew that I was going to go, I think, to be a doctor. And part of that really, Giselle, at the beginning was because you know there was a sense that like if you were good in science and if you were a smart girl, that there was this stretch or this reach like, well, you should be a doctor because that's that's a good thing for for you to be. and so. But it resonated with me, and I really like science. I really like biology and all that, so that worked. But then after I got to college and I started exploring other subjects, which and my college, you really, I really didn't get to do until well into my sophomore year because I was taking all sort of pre-med requirements and, and things, freshman. But that's when I kind of had my mind kind of expanded or to what other kinds of possibilities there were and to how the world works to how societies work to how governments work so I was the kind of weirdo biology major who was taking macroeconomics and political theory and, oh and sociology so really it was I think that sense of want to to do medicine but it's I recognize there are these other forces that are really important that affect people's lives, and I didn't know what to call it then. So people weren't using the term "social" or "structural determinants of health," like that wasn't a term of art back then. But I, I think that's what was drawing to me. It's like I know, you know, these these patterns of why people get sick and what puts people at risk. Like that, there's other stuff that leads to that, and so. In my mind, the policy piece that you know I may have been talking about was that was really how you got there, how you were able to get underneath that. You know, Now we have a much more, I think, sophisticated and nuanced way of talking about root causes and structural causes. But I think that's where that nidus came from.
1: Tell us about, if you would, after fellowship, how did you make the decisions about which posts you would take? An event and not soon after, what leadership roles you would take?
2: Yeah, that you know, it's funny because when you lay out your life in retrospect, it looks like it was all planned and decided, and you went from one thing to the other, and there was this overarching kind of you know method to the madness. But <laughs> when you're in it, you know, sometimes it's you're just sorting your way through, I think. You know, my first job at a fellowship was as the inpatient pediatrics director at Boston Medical Center, which is a teaching hospital affiliated with Boston University School of Medicine. We have a residency program jointly done with Children's Hospital Boston. It's a safety net, an urban safety net hospital. So all the things that go with that. I had done mainly inpatient medicine in my training, even though I was a primary care resident, like just when you add up the hours, most of what I had done was was inpatient. You know, when you spend six months in the NICU, you know.
1: (laughs) Not a lot of primary care happened in there.
2: Right, right, right. And, you know, the oncology and the ICU and the emergency department. So I was like, well, I could do this because essentially hospital medicine was what I had done. But I used that as a a platform or sort of a landing place where I could I could sort of plant my feet, but then be able to sort of look out and and do these other work. So so even while I was there, I was the research work and the academic work that I was looking on was on the impact of housing policy on kids with chronic illness or the back then I don't remember, there was this huge energy. Situation where you know Enron had happened, and energy costs were going up, and the cost of oil was going up, and so in New England, right, most most ha- most people heat by by oil, and so you know people like there's this whole heat or eat phenomenon that you know some colleagues at BMC had really done some just seminal work, you know, outlining. So you know that's the kind of work I was doing, and. Uh, you know I did that for a good long time and I you know I got grants and I was doing the I don't know what you would call that you you do it you know the academic thing the academic hustle I was I was you know mm-hmm. I used to say people to people it was like groveling for my mortgage because I, you know, I had to find funding so I could pay my bills but you know I was, was fairly successful at, at doing that like had that good gig and Doing all the academic things, which we should come back to because one of the things I would say is that the ability to say no was not something that I had perfected. So I was doing a a lot of what in academia you call like your, you know, your departmental citizenship kind of things. I was doing a whole lot of that. You know, it was all really important stuff. But in retrospect, I'm like, I don't think those tasks were, <laughs> were equally <laughs> or distributed. Right. <laughs> or age appropriate. <laughs> but then this opportunity came to go work at the public health department because there had been a gubernatorial election. There was a new secretary of health and human services uh, selected or appointed who was a physician herself. And I knew her and her work. Was that Judy Ann? Yes, Judy and Bigby, oh, exactly, yes. yeah.
0: exactly. Um,
2: so, so she had her, you know, equity and issues like that were certainly going to be part of her work. And then she selected John Arbach, who had, as the commissioner, and he was the one who reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, he's not a physician by training, although you know, obviously deeply steeped in public health." And he said, "You know, I want someone to come be my medical director." And love for you to do it. And, you know, so I listened to Giselle. I was like, uh, oh, but you know, but I had a gig. You know?
1: <laughs> the mortgage was paid for. <laughs>
2: I like, you know, I had my my little or uh, place, you know. And then I thought to myself, I said, like, you know, so Deval Patrick was governor, Judy M. Bigby was secretary, John, who I had known and worked with was the commissioner. Like, You've been talking a good talk about how you want to work in, you know, you want to work in
1: government. Right. The the stars could
2: not be brighter or better aligned. What exactly are you waiting for? Because like this, this lineup is not going to come a, you know, come across again. You know, this was a governor who talked about public health and stuff. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I guess I have to just leave my little safe space and try something new. And so that was, I had wanted to go back and to work for government, because as you mentioned, I started off actually, my first job out of college was working in government, in federal government actually. So I had all, I'd known I wanted to get back there because I thought that that would be a place to have influence and so, so I did. And I have to say it was a terrific choice. I really enjoyed all of the work had great colleagues. Had a, a window into public health that I wouldn't have had before. The kind of work that's possible and what one can do with innovative and creative leadership was terrific. And so, and it, and I think it really allowed me to bridge some things. So, having been spent all that time in academia, I was able to draw on those relationships, and when I needed a an advisory group on something. <laughs> you know, I, I knew who I could call and you know rope them in and was, okay, Lauren. Okay, <laughs> well, this is our opportunity to have influence. So yeah, it's awesome. So
1: talk about then, sort of that transition, the sort of places that you've been, and now almost on the other side, right, in terms of philanthropy.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, anyone who you talk to who's worked in state government or worked in the public sector knows that after a little while, that can be sort of draining. And especially when you're in a position that has a fair amount of visibility and there was some difficult things that sort of came up as I was sort of uh, going into my role that was hard to come into a a role with controversy sort of Waiting for you. So, after a while, I've decided that it was time to to do something different and took a a bit of a a pause. But that's when I worked, figured out I could do consulting and had knowledge that could be helpful to others and work with partners that I again that I've made you know in these other roles. And then after that, I was looking and trying to figure out well where and how can I have a different kind of impact and. I wasn't looking for it, again, this is sort of the theme here, but the opportunity to lead the U.S. health practice at a social impact consulting firm was intriguing because I had come across the work of FSG Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of the the ideas that I'd read about around multi-sector collaboration and collective impact, and that, to be honest, that was the first time I heard about them. I was like, well, yeah, this resonates, like, you know, in public health, multi-sector collaboration is like what we do, right? Like that's the essence of of public health. So I was like, okay. But they had like a way of talking about it that was yeah. like, you know, tidy. And I was like, so, okay. So I could, could see adopting some of that. So little did I know that I would end up spending five years there and that I would end up being co-CEO for two of those five years. So that definitely didn't predict that because hadn't gone to business school, hadn't worked at McKinsey, didn't have a a consulting background, but I think unlike many who I had done other things. So the, the folks that I was looking to support or to partner with were, I had done things that were relevant. So I think I, I, I can share with you that the whole time that I was there, I would always make a point when I would introduce myself to people. It's like I never introduced myself as a consultant. I would always say I was a pediatrician and former public health official because like that that was the capacity that exactly. I was bringing. Yep. And uh, it wasn't my ability to do fancy slide presentations or other things. that I think sometimes people kind of ridicule consultants for, but it was more to kind of, you know, bring those those other experiences, I think that folks ultimately valued that. And I picked up some important sort of guidance in terms of thinking in a somewhat different way and thinking about sort of organizing your thinking and conveying it in a strategic way. So I definitely learned a lot during that time there. And I think I also helped them sort of push a bit about what consulting can be about. And I think my teams got exposed to a different kind of way of building relationship with clients. So much so that I think, you know, people are like, how are you getting, you know, these people to do certain things or like we would have like difficult, you know, sometimes clients can be difficult. (laughs) But as a clinician, especially as a pediatrician, like who had to deal deal with parents. That's
1: exactly why I didn't go into pediatrics. (laughs) Literally, it was the parents, and as a parent now, I can say that
2: it was the right choice for me, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, but I mean, when you've had some experience in navigating emotionally fraught situations, eventually i I figured out what it was. It's like you're establishing a therapeutic relationship, yeah. so and you, as a primary care clinician know this, right? The relationship itself is part of the intervention. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so for me, in the same way that, you know, I would I I didn't realize until after the fact that when I go into communities as a public health person or whatever, it was like building those kinds of relationship is part of it's not only about trust building. It's like the there's a certain healing quality to sort of having that kind of relationship and I could do that with with clients and so that that ended up I think being helpful and sort of getting to different places with clients that may have been harder than if you were being a bit more transactional or more professionally
1: narrowed Mm -hmm. well it's bringing first of all it's like one of your comments about the therapeutic relationship and relationships in general being part of that transformation that happens in the work that we do. It's almost for me like a kaleidoscope that just everything kind of lined up for me just now. So thank you for that insight. That was that was pretty profound and probably one I'll think about for a, a bit longer.
2: Yeah. Well, I feel like that's how I find meaning too. because yeah. like People say, "Well, do you miss practice?" And I do. I mean. I love taking care of the kids. I even love the parents, even when they, because as, as a parent myself, I understood why, you know, it brought out the worst in people sometimes. I mean, the stress of having your kid hospitalized, because, yeah. you know, keep in mind, I was a uh, only seeing parents and, you know, kids in the hospital, you know, where their kids were oh. seriously ill. So that's not a happy time. So, but I, you know, so I miss that, but that I realized that in all my other, Work And in my work now, I'm doing that relationship development, that connecting to people that um, is what helps people feel listened to Mm -hmm. and helps them feel like you understanding, but then gives you, I don't want to say permission, but gives you a standing to be able to challenge some of the assumptions and the thinking and, you know, be able to, you know, the same way that you might listen and talk to a patient and say, you know, I know this, I'm hearing something is hard or whatever, but this is the problem you've come to me to talk about. So let's, let's talk about that. Even if it is hard, Yeah, like that's why you keep coming back or that's why you're here. So let's, you know, I'll be with you, but let's dig into this together.
1: You know, there is something about that relationship. I think that allows you to get to values, interests versus positions where you're able to go below the surface, right? And particularly, just as you said, in a clinical situation that's emotionally fraught, to be able to sort of see and appreciate the angst, anxiety, concern, anger, worry that a parent might have, but then also understand what's below the surface that you need to attend to in in that and how that carries forward into, into your other work.
2: Well, the other thing I would say too is one of the things that I think can hamper clinicians sometimes is the need for certainty and the need to have all the answers. And in pediatrics, there's a lot of times where it takes a while to figure things out, and you don't necessarily. There's a lot of stuff that's pretty straightforward, and you can say, "Yes, this is hand, foot, and mouth disease." I can reassure you completely that that's what this is. And right, it's on their hands, it's on their feet, and it's on their mouth. <laughs> As an example. It also goes to one other place that's not included in the name. They're, they're bums that could show up there, too. But for some reason, they neglected to add that to the name. I don't know why. Um, but there's times when you don't. You have a process for how you're going to figure it out, but you don't know exactly how you're going to do it. But you still need to connect and sort of build trust and say, look, I believe you. I hear what you're saying about this. This isn't right. And we're going to figure it out together. And here's how some ideas about how we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to keep you in the loop and whatever. So managing, or not that you're comfortable with uncertainty. I don't think anyone's ever really, you know, really comfortable with uncertainty. But the idea that you can acknowledge it and not be paralyzed by it, and and recognize that you can still make a connection, and that people will feel some degree of comfort just knowing that you're going to go with them through the discomfort or through the uncertainty and that you're you're not going to abandon them and so yeah so I feel like that's an important part and as we get older and mature I don't know about you but being able to say you know I'm not sure about that or I don't know you know there's a time probably when you're an intern or resident where you couldn't say I didn't know I know (laughs) (laughs) it's
1: freeing once you realize It won't blow up in your face. Just being able to say, I don't know, and I commit to finding out, or and it's going to be okay, and I'm thinking about being a parent now.
2: (laughs) There's a certain confidence that comes with recognizing that you've either achieved something or you have a certain level of sort of professional maturity that you can do that. Mm-hmm. Without it mm-hmm. undermining your credibility, well, or and that's you, it. Yeah, like yeah. oh gosh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She just says she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Like you know, there's probably a certain place where if you you did do that a lot, people would say, "Well, does she really <laughs> <Exactly>. know what, <laughs> what she's does doing?" She know?
1: <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> yeah. So one of the privileges of being older. Yep. Absolutely. To make up for some of the other things. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have literally been in almost all the places that physician leaders can be in terms of healthcare, public health, policy, philanthropy. And so I want your perspectives on what you see as the key challenges for leaders, particularly emerging leaders, during this time.
2: You mean right now, this particular?
1: This moment, we're in the midst of the one month, one year anniversary of of probably the most tumultuous time, personally, professionally, socially, economically politically
2: yeah my children one of my daughters sent me a little group text and our family text that you know it was a year ago that we went on I took them on vacation for their spring break and then we were gone for a couple days and then they never went back to school and all hell broke loose and they said you know that was a year ago Mm -hmm. she sent a little scream emoji (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It feels to me like there's I don't know. You know, it's it can be so overwrought and and vocabulary is so strained and often sort of overused unprecedented probably as a word
1: that and and laid bare.
2: Oh, my goodness. The, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Like what did people say before laid bare? Before late that. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's so funny you said that. I was going to say that exact thing. But it is a unique time where there's a confluence of events. And I think the sort of emerging understanding by folks for whom it was unseen that there are these structural and systemic racism in our country and the, the protests that came from that. But for people, again, who may not have seen the patterns at play, seeing how COVID did what all the rest of the illnesses and diseases do, didn't mm-hmm. behave any differently. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, you could you could have put all of us in a room in February and said, if this becomes a pandemic, what is it going to look like? And we could right. say, well, it's going to do this, it's going right. to do this, it's going to do this, it's going to do this. There's no surprise.
1: There was no surprise. I have a colleague who says when white America gets a cold, black and brown America gets pneumonia.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Gets pneumonia, hospitalized. Loses, exactly. loses income, and then like right. might end up being housing unstable and food insecure and <laughs> right, all of that, all that. <laughs> but I just feel like it's if we're interested. We got to do something different now. And so I am, I think there was times in my career where I would have been more circumspect or more, I won't say delicate, but more gentle, maybe, and how I might have talked about things or, and I, not so much now. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's so freeing to be able to just say talk about well you know this is an example of structural racism or it's there let's just you know Mm -hmm. why don't we talk about it and you know acknowledge it and so that has been freeing and i feel like that gives us at least a a chance at undoing and being able to address some of it because before when we were trying to talk about, as an example, the, the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Well, those are really important, housing and education and environment and those sorts of things. But but they're not independent. Right. We needed to go beyond back before right. that. Like, keep going upstream, folks. <laughs> keep going. Almost there. Why, why <laughs> is it that, why? you know, Black and brown communities have worse air quality mm. or, you know, there's more... Congested housing and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Let's go back a little bit further. And then you get to, well, you know, it was mortgage practices and redlining and. Yep, almost there. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> so that, I don't know. That gives yeah. me, I mean, some people might see that as being bleak or depressing, but it's like, well, you know, if you're willing to, to go all the way there, then at least there's a chance of of addressing. It. You know, I used to, I talked about it. I I would gross people out. You know, I would love to do this in uh, my other job. I would talk, you know, explain about debridement. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This idea that you have to right, you, you do gotta get the dunk out. You got to clean that wound out. You know, mm-hmm. it cannot heal if there's material in there that's preventing the wound from healing from the mm-hmm. inside out. I said so and it's not comfortable and people have to be medicated yeah. when, when they're doing right. it. You know? Exactly. And it's going to leave
1: a scar, but it's important it to heal if you're going to have it heal.
2: Yes. So I so I was like, you know, so that's what we need to do. And it's uncomfortable and it, it creates, people don't want to do it. You You're not looking forward to it. And it may, you know, I think part of what we're seeing in the backlash, Frank, right, that we're, we're seeing from all this what we saw earlier in january Mm -hmm. that the riot insurrection assault is that for many people it's just too uncomfortable yeah like they cannot fathom withstand it it is psychically emotionally physically Mm -hmm. too uncomfortable traumatic
1: I'm thinking of the, I think it's James Baldwin who said, it might be someone else I'm not that great with remembering, ascribing quotes to the people they belong to, but that it's not everything that you meet can be changed, but you can only change the things that you're able to meet head on. I might have mangled the quote as well. But yeah, yeah, I,
2: no, no, exactly. <laughs> no, I know, I know the quote you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. And so, and yet that psychic, yeah, the psychic trauma that was exhibited in January sixth, and then the vicarious trauma that we all we all sort of witnessed and felt, is both worrisome and concerning, and also, I think it demonstrates the kind of shifts that are happening. I mean, that fear that was exhibited to me. It, there's a shred of hope in there that about the kinds of shifts that at least those individuals felt and felt compelled to react against.
2: Oh, that that's what was scary to them. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, I think that it's, that's a lot happening. That's a lot pent up. And so there's definitely a, a series of forces that one is actively having to push against. I think now, Giselle, you see like the, again predictable perhaps or likely movement at the state level to change voter registration yes. rules and laws you know especially in Georgia where they had such an impressive turnout yeah. and like so predictable it's like oh so predictable well we got to we got
1: <laughs> we got to roll that back can't like have you-, you
2: exercising your rights like that that does not yeah.
1: <laughs> not what we planned
2: and you know what, what are we going to do between now and 20 years from now when the majority of people in this c- country will be people of color like how are we yeah. going to negotiate those next two decades yeah yeah be- because that's i mean unless there's just some incredible amount of of weird gerrymandering even worse than it is now like the numbers just aren't going to Be there, so like (laughs) there's only so many back sort of mental gymnastics and backflips you'll be able to do, and so what are we gonna? How are we gonna prepare all of our cells for that? So I wonder, I wonder about that, but we'll be a little bit older then. We'll be retired by then.
1: I would say twenty years from now. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a success you're proud of. You've done so much, in so many spaces. What's something you're particularly proud of?
2: Oh, gosh. I don't know. It's not that it's so many to choose from. It's just like, how do you, it's not necessarily how you think about those things. Well, something that I'm especially proud of it because I don't think it's not going to like be written in my epitaph. And I don't think other folks would even know about it. But when I was at the Department of Public Health, I was talking about how like, collect people and get them to do things so two things one was at the I was able to gather together the the local chapter the mass chapter of ACOG the march of dimes other researchers who were interested in maternal and child health and outcomes we did some really I think great work in conjunction with the the stats at folks and the department around birth outcomes. And we were able to sort of stratify and, and share that with all the birth hospitals. We showed them how they were going relative to the, all the other hospitals, but gave them each their individual like hospital performance. And we didn't publish it publicly, but we gave everyone their information relative to everyone else's. And that work ended up having impact on the thing that we were looking at and ultimately generated a perinatal quality collaborative that, you know, some, that still exists and is, you know, was wow. the genesis of the perinatal quality collaborative that we have. And it, you know, I, it really, it literally happened because I called up mid Kulchuk and I called up folks at the MGH and at BMC and it's like, we need to get our hands around this and can you do it? And you know, I didn't have money to pay these People. It wasn't like it was a grant, but they, they were really into it, and they, they participated in a really cool way. So I think that's an example of something I'm really proud of, that the Massachusetts Perinatal Quality Collaborative and the work that came out of that was, I don't, I mean, it probably would have maybe happened eventually, but I think it happened when it did, because I was able to sort of pull that group together. It's like,
1: at that time, cutting-edge quality improvement strategies.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And being able to respond and having yeah. done the the analytic work so that when hospitals say, well, right. our patients are different. Right. Well, not so much. <laughs> not really, <laughs> not, really I mean, not so much.
1: Let me, let me let me
2: share with you what the deal is so you can, <laughs> you can have this. So having that and, and having, you know, the partnership of folks in the department who are excited that their work was getting to shift policy basically what we wanted to do was you know shift op- policy at the birthing hospitals to change behavior. So that was a good one. And I think the other one that I'm secretly very proud of, so you know, mm-hmm. pride's a sin. But um during H one N one, if you recall, we were, you know, everyone was I was helping to lead our response and everyone was all that was when we were freaking out about like one case in mm-hmm. a confirmed case. I don't know if you remember that, but people were like yeah following people like if a kid left school and there was some thought that he might be there were helicopters I mean it was <laughs> it was craziness but we were getting you know we were having like regular check-ins and I was getting like a report from our epidemiologist you know every day on who was in the hospital and you know what had happened and I you know started to see that there's like gosh there's a lot of pregnant women in the ICU That's weird. Like why are why are all like just
1: more than seemed like one. One is more than is reasonable.
2: (laughs) Well, just like why why pregnant women? I mean, how many pregnant women are there? Like why (laughs) are they showing up, you know? And so say, can you find out more? And so you got more and at one point I you'll get a kick out of this. I you know, I remember sitting at my desk and like literally doing math like on a scratch paper you know, looking at sort of ratios and comparing them like, this is not right. Like what we are seeing, this is not right. This is, and they were hospitalized in the ICU. So it wasn't just that they were like being hospitalized right. be, as a precaution, which you might say, like they were intubated sick. and, and I, they were in the ICU. Like, you don't, you don't get to take up one of those beds unless you're really sick. So we worked with, again, ACOG because I had some partnerships with them and family medicine and put out a guidance to obstetric clinicians that it's really looking like pregnant women are suffering from severe disease. So you need to have a different process for screening them. They, you need to sort of start antiviral treatment right away to alter the protocol. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. well, like monitor your symptoms and call me back. Like, no. Yeah. And so, you know, they were really, you know, ACOG was, you know, really good about it. And we got it up through all the hospital channels. And we had the ability to do that, right? Because we had all these these networks. Um, and then come to find out, CDC ended up putting out something about that phenomenon. That was a phenomenon that became well-known. Yeah. But we got ours out in June. And the CDC, not that we're in pairing but you know theirs (laughs) came out in like like september or something like that Mm -hmm. so i felt like you know we were able to protect like three months worth of pregnant women yeah because we saw that we had the surveillance we had the capacity to have someone whose job it was was to sift through like the reports of the hospital which is why you need public health right because if no one was collecting that information about like what and then there was no one to report it to, like, wow, these pregnant women in the ICU, then we wouldn't have been able to do that. So that to me was a good example of public health working when you have the infrastructure to to do it.
1: And it takes courage to be able to pull pull the trigger on something like that. I mean, in addition to sort of the analytics, surveillance, the insight to be able to look at the data that you have in front of you, to be able to sort of say wait a minute something here is wrong and we need to do something differently takes a certain amount of courage as well tell me at each of these stages and steps we described your trajectory but what was your decision making like did do you have a, is it all gut is there do you do a pro and con list how do you how do you think about these opportunities
2: i don't know that it's a, an explicit pro and con list but i'm i like what is the sort of like what is your calling like what is the not exactly the highest and best use of your skill set but sort of what are you uniquely sort of situated to be able to do like what it where do you feel like you can make the best sort of contribution mm-hmm. now i will share with you that my husband's theory about this is that I always make the choice to make less money. So, <laughs> so, you know, when deciding what 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 specialty to go into, you choose pediatrics, right? Right. Yeah, Whoa. there you go. Know. When you decide where you want to, like, practice at, you choose academics. Whoa. Where? Oh, a, a teaching hospital in a... That's a safety net hospital. Whoa. <laughs> Then from there, you go to the public health department working for state government. Low. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's how he thinks I make the choice, but that's actually not how I make the choice. But if he were here, that's what he would say.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. I hadn't factored in that variable. I think, yeah, there you go.
2: <laughs> but, you know, in my mind, right, I was like, Especially when I was working at BMC, yeah, like I can exactly. pay my bills. Yeah, I can pay my car. Everybody's eating. Everybody's it, eating. Utilities have never been disconnected. You know, so in my mind, I've- I can't say the same. That has happened to me,
1: <laughs> not because I couldn't pay, because I didn't pay.
2: <laughs> right, right, right. But it's I mean, like, it wasn't like automatic I- deduction. <laughs> but that kind of thing. So I was like, yeah. you know. And so that, although I have to say that being low-key, not low-key, but sort of being satisfied like that or not, it was like, well- That gratitude. That gratitude actually didn't serve me well in one situation when I ultimately found out that there was someone who was doing similar work that was making 30% more than I
1: was. Oh, well, that's a story of every
2: person of color and woman's career. Oh, right, but I like because I hadn't yeah. I yeah. hadn't sort of aggressively negotiated cuz I was like, "Well, gosh, you know, this thank you. I have a job." <laughs> <laughs> Even when I knew exactly what
1: my colleague who was hired the year before me made. I was like, "Oh, sure. Well, okay, I'll take that." <laughs> it's like
2: so so now every woman, and I had man too, but pri- especially the women that I mentor, it's like you have to be willing to talk about money and that's not something yeah. that it's not a it's not dirty. It's not ugly. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. You better believe I went in there and asked for that 30% rate. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That was that was the biggest single jump <laughs> percentage wise in my whole career. Did you bring it home to show your husband say, look <laughs> Well, you know, what's what's interesting is that like when I found out about it I was so, I'm normally like relatively mild manner, but I was like beside myself. Cause I told you, I was like doing all these other things and having lots of residents and students and doing all the like mm-hmm. good, good doobie stuff. And right. I was like, my head was like exploding. I'm like, what? <laughs> you have like all that I'm doing, like extra and all this right. other stuff and what? So yeah, no, he had to kind of talk me off the ledge. Yeah, like, Really? So he, he he actually felt sorry for my department chair. Maybe I should call him to tell him just to say, just to say just yes. To, to, right?
1: It's like, just to prep him.
2: He's coming.
1: Like my He's suggestion
2: to you. Her, right. He it's just pushed her. Be very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to go well for you. Right. If you say anything. Oh, gosh. <laughs> because no one had you know how it is like there's the nice Giselle and then there's the like fired up Giselle probably yeah. right and a lot of people probably haven't seen the fired up one so then when yeah. that one comes... uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> well back then,
2: <laughs> yeah back then the fired up Lauren hadn't shown herself as much so yeah it was, it was a little bit more unusual <laughs> 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 to have that alter ego show up
1: So the questions we ask everyone, tell me, what do you do for self-care? Particularly in this moment in time, in the jobs that you have or and have had, what do you do to
2: make sure you're full? I am a person that needs exercise and I used to run, but then I had a couple, two, three back surgeries and a fusion. So I can't really run anymore. So I was doing yoga. I was a big, hot yoga enthusiast can't really do that so much anymore with like going out so i am doing some weightlifting, and i i bought myself i splurged i got myself a you know stationary bike and so yeah. I, I do that which feels very decadent because i can read um while i'm on it or sometimes i'll watch something you know so that'll be good um so but yeah so trying to sort of exercise i think is is really important we got a dog, we got a puppy, Yay. you know, so that's a sort, I know it sounds so s- sappy and silly, but she's, it very, works. Yeah. She's definitely good therapy. My daughter said, she's like Valium for the house.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love it. What kind of dog? She is a Bernadoodle. So she's a mixture between a poodle and a Bernese mountain dog. So oh, wow. She's, Got a lot of fluffy, curly fur, very sweet disposition. So, we love her. Ruby is her name. Ruby. So, Ruby's part of my self care these days.
1: What's your favorite leadership book or a book you would recommend to others?
2: I don't know about leadership books because I don't know that I tend to read books like that's the purported idea, but the most recent book that I'm reading and I've got just I think a a one more chapter or so is Isabel Wilkerson's book Uh, Cast Cast. yeah I've been recommending that to everyone speaking of being someone's agent I feel like I'm her agent like like a portion of the royalties (laughs) yeah because I've just been like you must read this book it is incredibly well written Mm -hmm. and easy to read and she's got a really wonderful way with prose so she makes you know a nonfiction book yeah. not easy to read because the subject matter is it's hard you know heavy mm-hmm. but like it's not like reading something dry and dense mm-hmm. and her clarity around how she describes this and I was just really intrigued by how she's saying cast comes first and then race is constructed to to kind of perpetuate, you know, mm. the power dynamics within cast. And I was like, okay, okay. Let me try that one on for a side. Mm-hmm. And there's so much, like, it's so well-researched and there's so many, oh gosh, there's so much in there that I didn't, that I didn't know or hadn't come. Not that I know everything, but like I thought I was, you know, fairly
1: mm-hmm. macroeconomics as a med student, as an undergrad, yeah.
2: <laughs> but there's so much in there that I was like, who was this person, and why did I not know about that yeah. person? And it's it's on my list. It's on my list. Every... Oh, I'm you must.
1: On... Yeah, you working... must. I, I read her her other novel.
0: now that one. I
1: haven't. Sons.
2: I have not read oh, that. Oh my one. gosh beautiful amazing beautifully written too is what I understand oh, like, my beautiful gosh. Prose. yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah. very l- lyrical and so yes I want it now that I've done this one I'm like okay I,
1: I it's beautiful and there too just understanding migration patterns and yeah
2: yeah but she has a just a very analytic way of breaking it down so that it becomes almost unavoidable for you to sort of see the patterns that she's doing and she uses a lot of you know metaphors about what's happening in the basement and it might be leaking down there (laughs) you don't (laughs) want to go look and see but like it doesn't mean that it's not leaking right it's still gonna leak right wonderful yeah so that's that's a book I would recommend to everyone
1: what do you think separates good leaders from great leaders tenacity
2: Boldness, an ability, not—it's not that you don't care what other people think, but that you're okay with being unpopular or mm-hmm. not liked, not immediately liked or loved, and staying true to the your compass.
1: What advice would you give to your younger self? Don't be so hard
2: on yourself and so judgment you know all that like negative Mm self-talk like don't do that (laughs) stop that (laughs) stop (laughs) stop that and there's not to be cocky but sort of recognize that you have value that you can Mm. contribute and that's good that's what you're bringing it's not that other people don't have value or that you know you can't work with others but it's okay you've you have value and that's good this has been wonderful lauren it's been oh so I've been so fun to,
1: yeah. yeah so great to spend time with you and again to reconnect after all these years it's been it's really been that one of those covid silver linings i think so too thanks again oh um, my pleasure
0: Thanks to our listeners for joining us and special thanks to Dr. Lauren Smith. On the next episode of season three of A Different Kind of Leader, we will be hearing from Dr. Keith Norris, who is an internationally recognized clinical scientist and health policy leader who has been instrumental in shaping national health policy and clinical practice guidelines in the area of kidney disease. This episode was edited by DeAndre Sawyer, Many thanks to the DKL production team with host Giselle Corby-Smith, executive producer Sable Watson, producer and creative director Rachel Quito, production assistants Jamie Eade, DeAndre Sawyer and Shelby McLam, and music by Mixout and Out Lounge. Visit our website at differentkindofleader.com to find resources for your leadership toolkit and check out previous podcast episodes of our guest leaders. And if you've liked what you've heard, Please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find us. Like and comment on Facebook and Instagram at Different Kind of Leader, all one word, as well as on Twitter at DK Leadership. As always, we want to hear from you, our listeners. So please contact us at differentkindofleader@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is A Different Kind of Leader.